Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, I'm Catherine Martini, a second-year Master's of Environmental Management student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I'm also a member of the communications team for the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, and today I will be interviewing Liz Barrett-Brown. Liz has worked for many years at the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC, beginning her career there in 1981 after graduating from Brown University. She also worked for Senator Lautenberg, where she helped craft the Toxic Release Inventory, the nation's first community right to know act on toxic chemicals, before returning to the Connecticut to get her law degree from our very own Yale Law School. As a senior advisor to NRDC, her work focused on protection of Canada's boreal forest, working with U.S. and Canadian groups and First Nations, she advocated against the expansion of tar sands, oil extraction in northern Alberta, and was central to the launch of the campaign against the Keystone XL pipeline. Liz has also worked to strengthen global environmental treaties on climate change, biodiversity, and ozone depletion. Liz Liz serves on the advisory board of the Center for a New American Dream and the executive committee of the Yale Law School. Liz, thanks so much for being with us here today. Thanks for having me. Um, so our first question that I'd love to ask you is going way back when you worked with Senator Lautenberg in the 1980s, you were a part of helping to cre- create the Toxic Release Inventory or the nation's first Community Right to Know Act on toxic chemicals. Can you tell us a little bit about your work on this project and perhaps explain uh, what the Toxic Release Inventory is for our listeners that might not be familiar with it? Well, I love this question because it's such an exciting story, really. So you have to go back to Bhopal and Union Carbide. Um, There was a huge explosion in India which killed um, thousands and thousands of of people who were living very, very close to the Union Carbide plant. And it was a chemical called methyl isocyanate that um, uh, caused the the most damage from this explosion. And I think immediately, you know, I was working, obviously, for a senator from New Jersey where there's a lot of chemical facilities. Mm -hmm. And so the immediate question was, do we have methyl isocyanate here in um, the United States? And if we do, where is it? Um, So we asked that question. We asked EPA. We asked a bunch of the states. um, uh, And the answer we got was, we're not sure. (laughs) Um, And so that was really alarming to us. And in fact, I think New Jersey had um, a facility. I know for sure there was one in West Virginia where methyl isocyanate was being produced. And uh, but this this information was not publicly available. It was difficult to track down. The way we were regulating chemical facilities was basically you would have to go to the air office to find the air information. You have to go to the water office to find the water information. Um, it was in inconsistent units. You never could easily get um, you know the whole picture about a chemical facility. And as a, a citizen, a layperson, it was really difficult to understand that material. So there was a group called Inform, which had tried to organize something in New Jersey, I think quite successfully, to do an inventory like this. Uh, and they came in and talked to us. Um, and, uh, you know, they were basically requiring facilities to report on, um, they'd gotten the New Jersey legislature to, ad- legislature to adopt this. Um, they were forcing the chemical companies to report 
report on how much are you releasing to air, what are you releasing to water, what are you storing on site, um, and do kind of a mass balance, right? Mm -hmm. Like how much is going out, how much is going in a product. Um, we were never successful in getting a total mass balance in the federal legislation because there was a little bit of like, what's the recipe for chicken salad? If you knew how much was going into the product, you could reverse engineer and figure out like how to make something. Um, but they were able to point out that so many of these chemical facilities um, once you actually looked at the whole picture, and this was useful also for the CEOs, um, they would say, well, wait a minute, why are we losing millions of pounds of this chemical? Because we have to pay for that chemical or we have to make it. And it's just going out in the environment. And um, so it, it's mm. one of those really interesting stories where, you know, the, the law that, you know, really regulates um, chemicals when they're coming on the marketplace is called TSCA. And it you know, had basically regulated like six toxic chemicals by, you know, the early 80s, which is when we were working on this after Bhopal. Um, and it had taken forever to get like, you know, a regulation on benzene and on um, formaldehyde and some other big chemicals. Um, so the beauty of this toxic release inventory was that the list was like, hundred and something chemicals. Wow. And the CEO had actually signed the, the report every year facility by facility. If you had any of these chemicals on site, you had to you had to actually review the materials of CEO and sign it. So we had like in some cases 90% reduction in those chemicals that were used by the facility. But it also gave the community for the first time access to critical information like I live next to a chemical plant. What is my kid exposed to? Right. So suddenly they had access to through this inventory. It was a public database. The first put on the computer Mm -hmm. and could be played around with by the public. It's yeah, kind no, of amazing we've done in those it in days. some of our GIS right. classes. It's really incredible. So this was the, the first time that uh, legislation actually required putting it on a computer where it could be interactive. Um, epidemiologists used it for looking for cancer clusters across the country. Um, and I think one of my favorite stories was going to New York and meeting a New York City fireman who said, yep, I was hired out of Bell Atlantic um, to... Um, to uh, put together a system so that firemen going to a fire will actually be able to pull up the toxic release inventory and know what's on site. Mm -hmm. So we know what equipment to, to bring in with us, what clothing to wear, does it melt on us, yeah. or we don't inhale this. And, you know, so many injuries were from lack of knowledge about what was on site. So the, the inventory has served so many purposes, but I think the most important one is opening it up, transparency, democracy. We have the right to know. I love the title. It is what it is. Absolutely. We have the right to know Absolutely. what surrounds us. Incredible. And Lautenberg was a real, you know, he was a real hero on this, but it wasn't hard because we literally had at one point workers hanging off the Gothel's Bridge by their fingernails and everybody was going, we think it's sulfur dioxide. We're not sure. We don't know if they're going to die. We don't know if it's going to fall off the bridge. So, you know, basically the media surrounded him and said, what are you going to do? And this was, you know, a great response. And I think um, he was a first-term senator at that point. And he said to me 20-some-odd years later that of all the legislation he ever worked on, he was the proudest of the toxic release inventory. Wow. That made me feel, you know, very happy that we had pushed that. It was hard because we had to, you know, on the time on the committee, um, uh, we had to work with Lloyd Benson from Texas who, you know, a lot of the uh, chemical facilities had moved to Texas, and he wasn't very happy that we were pushing this. We had to do a conference with the House, and um, I, luckily, uh, you know, when you're in conference, you can close the door, and nobody really hears what you're talking about, and we were able to really make the case to, I remember Congressman Lent from Long Island who was came in, feeling like this was going to be a burden. I mean, you have to remember that there was a huge campaign against it. It was hard to argue 
that you were responding up responding to Bhopal, but they you know the chemical industry got to the fire chiefs because they provide a lot of their equipment and their fire trucks, and they convinced them to go out and say we don't want this because we're going to have to build libraries onto our firehouses, right. and so there was a campaign against it. Um, so it wasn't easy, and there were times that I remember my legislative director said, "Well, can't we do something that makes this easier but still looks as good?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, no, no, we've got to keep this thing, you know, because it's going to be really important. You're going to have to have all these tools for." to use it the way that I've described. Right. Yeah. It's an incredible legacy to be a part of. So, which kind of leads into my next question. I'm wondering what it was like to be working as an, an attorney at NRDC and during the toxic release inventory, if you were working more as an attorney or as an advocacy role, it kind of sounds like a mixture of both or Right. What that so, was like. well, what happened was after I worked on the Hill, um, I decided I really wanted to travel around the world. So I knew my family wasn't going to be very happy about that, <laughs> especially my grandparents. And so I said, well, okay, what if I apply to law school, which I think I want to go to law school. What if I apply to law school and then go on my trip? Um, uh, so um, I did do that. And um, so it was a year for traveling and then three years in law school. And then I worked on a political campaign for Rosa DeLauro, her first campaign in uh, for Congress. Um, so I took a little time off from law school to do that. So by the time I was back out in the job field, it was quite distant from mm-hmm. the time I'd done that super fun work. And I did get two offers from NRDC to come back. And one was to come back and work on, in the health program. And I would have been mm-hmm. working on the toxic release inventory. Um, or to come back and work in the international program. And I chose the latter because I had really done a lot of work at Yale Law School on international environmental institutions and environmental law. So that had become like a new passion for me. But I'm happy to say that the guy who was hired in my place at NRDC came out of Lautenberg staff. <laughs> he was one of my, you know, um, uh, successors at, in Lautenberg staff. And he, of course, knew the toxic release inventory in and out. And has become, I mean, NRDC has been a long champion of keeping it in place and making sure that it the chemicals expand and it has greater reach and, you know, Wonderful. adapts with the times. So what brought you to environmental law? Uh, love of the outdoors. You know, as a kid, I, I remember in fourth grade, my mom said, okay, you can have one pair of boots. And I said, well, okay. I really wanted a pair of boots to um, go wading to catch frogs. So I suffered my entire fourth grade year um, wearing rubber boots in Connecticut when it still snowed with big, thick wool socks <laughs> because I had to have my frog catching boots. This is a so, passion we both share. Yeah, I, I love catching frogs. <laughs> it started early. We had a little pond on our property, and I was constantly relocating them, which was probably not very kind. But, you know, when I was 10, I thought that was really cool. And uh, I don't know. My mom says from early on I, she knew that this was the field I was going to be involved with. And um, uh, I have to say that when I got to Brown, um, it was the, I think, the first year of the environmental studies program. Hmm. So I was actually in the first graduating class of environmental studies majors. Yeah. Um, so that was an exciting time. I remember people saying to me, oh, my God, why are you doing that? You're never going to get a job. I said, oh, I think this environmental stuff, I think it's going to be, a, I think it's going to continue to be, a, you know, important issue. Uh. We hear that at the forestry school sometimes, too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's freaking fine. Um, so you've been working to stop the expansion of the Alberta tar sands for the last eight years as well. And in November 2015, President Obama rejected the proposed Keystone XL pipeline. 
Uh, and was that, I'm wondering what that moment was like for you. It must have been incredible. But, but first, before we get into that, I was wondering if for our listeners that might not be fully submersed in the details of Keystone XL and the saga there, or fully up to date on the permitting issues, if you could give us a brief summary of the key aspects of Keystone XL and, and uh, uh, leading us up to today. Sure, sure. Well, let, let me start actually with the announcement, because that really was, as you said, was quite a moment. Um, uh, you know, I was saying in the class earlier, I was at the law school and, and said that the moment that the president actually used the words Keystone XL, which was uh, in the fall of 2011. So we were, you know, about um, two, three years into the campaign at that point. You know, we almost fell off our seats. We couldn't believe the president was actually saying, he said Keystone XL. <laughs> um, so, you know, when we started the campaign, um, uh, we really want to draw attention to the tar sands. Um, you know, I think a lot of Americans don't know much about the tar sands. Um, it's a huge deposit of oil, second only to Saudi Arabia. Um, it's highly degraded oil because it's very close to the surface of the boreal forest in Alberta and in Saskatchewan. Um, so because it's degraded, um, it is really dirty, and you have to basically dig it out, almost like you're mining peat. And then you have to use chemicals to separate the oil from the the the, um, the soil and the sand, um, which is very energy intensive. You have to use, use hot water, and um, so the whole process is um, you know it almost takes as much energy to produce the tar sands as the oil generates. Um, uh, so it's very dirty. It's the dirtiest oil on the planet. Uh, I know the Canadian government has argued with us for years about this, but. Um, you know, Venezuela, the Orinoco belt does come in sort of second on that, but it's very, very dirty oil. And we knew at the time we had two missions. One was to better protect the boreal forest because we've worked for years with Canadian groups and with First Nations in Canada and the boreal forest. I know the tar sand sounds like some Brea tar pit where <laughs> there's some lonely tumbleweed blowing across some oil patch. But in fact, it's this gorgeous blue-green forest mm. with rivers and mar- marshes and fens and moose and bear and you know caribou um and so um and it was being basically based you know to to mine the tar sands you have to suck the water um re-divert you know divert rivers suck the water off the top of the land you have to cut the forest uh in order to start to scrape out the um uh to scrape out the soil you can also drill for tar sands um again very um land um, consumptive because you've you've got to do pads and roads and pipes and everything. Um, So a lot of the habitat impact from the tar sands, um, which, you know, affects literally billions of birds um, who nest there, um, is this habitat um, fragmentation. Um, So we, you know, working with our Native colleagues and our environmental colleagues had been for years trying to build attention around what was happening in the tar sense. At the same time, of course, our climate awareness is growing, that this is a major potential game changer for, the, for getting climate under control. So we really pursued those two aims throughout um, our work on this. Um, Keystone became the issue that sort of brought the um, issue home. Um, people could relate to a pipeline going through their own backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, we worked really hard to connect it to what was happening in the tar sands um, so they could connect the pipeline to the work we've been doing previously. Um, but it, in many cases, it was, um, I think, 
uh, the question of is the pipeline in the national interest really became the major driving question. And to answer that question, you have to look at, okay, so the oil comes from Alberta. It's pushed through a 2,000-mile-long pipe. That pipe is regulated for conventional oil or built to specs for conventional oil, not for tar sands oil. Um, it's going over 2,000 water bodies, including wow. the Agalala, which is our one of our largest freshwater aquifers. Um, so I think rightfully, you know, to end up sort of in the in the Gulf, I think rightfully people were asking, where's the benefit for us? Lots of risk. Especially around the pipeline. And then so we were able to work with allies along the pipeline route especially in Nebraska, as well as working with the climate community and 350.org and lots of other organizations um, to raise the climate issues around expanding the tar sands. And Keystone kind of provided the framework for that. Right, right. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the Alberta Clipper, which is one of the existing tar sands pipelines? Sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I kind of blithely go over that we actually won the Keystone XL campaign. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, when we started. So that happened. Uh, we literally, yeah, we literally gave it like, okay, now we're moving to Alberta Clever. <laughs> you know, we literally gave it a 5% chance that we would prevail um, in that campaign. Um, but we thought it would be a good way of, as I said, drawing attention. So, um, you know, you never know what's going to happen with your campaign. I mean, we started this, um, we had no idea it was going to become the central organizing um, part of our work on tar sands, let alone a central organizing piece for the climate movement. Um, It really became the line in the sand. Um, We built the most diverse coalition, along with, of course, 350.org and Bill McKibben, who was critical to drawing in students and um, many, many people um, to come to protests and demonstrations and even presidential hugs around the White House. Um, uh, But, you know, we also, there was this other side of the campaign, which was basically chipping away at all of the arguments of the pipeline proponents, that the pipeline was going to reduce gas prices, um, that it was going to provide energy security, that it was going to um, reduce the volatility of our exposure to Venezuela and the Middle East. Um, you know, these, there was going to provide, ultimately, there were some claiming millions of jobs in building this pipeline. Um, so we had to address all of those issues over the co- course of the, those years. And really, even close to the, the decision by the president on November 6, 2015, I almost didn't have the courage to give it more than 50% chance. So it's one of those stories that you just can't believe that we right. actually won. Right. Um, and it, But it was hard work. It was, you know, going back, never letting a false argument stand for very long. Um, we worked really well as a coalition, each group bringing their strengths to bear. Um, it gave people something to do after a very demoralizing um, legislative debate f- for legislation in Congress. Remember that Obama... Um, had three priorities when he first came in. One was health care, another was energy reform, another was education. And by the time he got to energy after the health care debate, it was tough. He couldn't get the Senate to act. So um, that was very demoralizing for a lot of people in the movement. Um, but Keystone brought everybody together, you know. It, it, it just was this wonderful spark, you know, that people were saying, okay, we can't expand anymore. We cannot expand our reliance on the dirty, dirtiest oil. So um, I feel like it, it's been it, a galvanizing force for the Keep It in the Ground movement yeah. and the divestment right. movement. And right. So and I many. think it was incredibly educational. I mean, I think, you know, the president kind of started off in a place where he was thinking, 
well, gosh, this seems really important to Canada. They're our number one trading partner. Um, he didn't even call it tar sands in the beginning. He was calling it oil sands because <laughs> that's what the Canadians called it. So, you know, it, it, you know, by the time we finished with Keystone, he totally understood the impact that tar sands expansion, as Jim Hansen said, would be a game changer on climate. We couldn't meet our climate goals with expansion of the tar sands. He got it. And I think, you know, Secretary Clinton was in charge of the decision. She was educated through the process. She started off saying, I'm inclined to approve the pipeline until we have clean energy. We knew that was, you know, an argument we were never going to get to clean energy. But by the end, um, certainly in her campaign, I don't know if you've, you know, you've got to go back and watch the Saturday Night Live where she's um, the bartender, Val, the bartender, and she's, you know, <laughs> talking to the bartender about, you know, and he's like, she said, well, Val, so who are you? And she said, well, I'm like any other citizen who's really concerned about Keystone XL. <laughs> and, you know, Hillary's like, you know, you know, uh, her, her, the woman playing Hillary uh, says, yeah, I'm sorry it took me so long to make that decision <laughs> against the pipeline. But anyway, that's when you know, you know, you've kind of made yeah. a mark. And, yeah, you've uh, uh, very exciting. penetrated mass culture when yeah. you're on Saturday Night Live, exactly. for sure. And Colbert, and yeah. I think you're right when you talk about educating, even as a society or a culture in the environmental movement. I remember coming across Bill McKibben's uh, article in Rolling Stone, you know, Global oh, yeah. Warming's Terrifying New Math, and how incredible that was, and it introduces into, uh, you know, mass culture, the idea of carbon budgets. Right. You know, what a complex right. idea, and right. breaks it down into these three numbers and makes it so simple, and yeah. so I, it's it's been an in, incredible movement that I think you're right has just sort of really galvanized and unified and, and led to so many other spinoff things never no one could foresee that yeah just yeah. been incredible no it's true I mean in, even the international energy um, you know agency came out at some point you know a couple of years ago saying you know we've done the math on this if we right. want to get to two percent you know no more than two percent which of course we're now trying to get to um, one one and a half um, we can't expanded right. to tar sands. So, right. but this was at, you know, this was an incredible thing that we got to this place because, yeah. um, you know, I like to say you go back not that far, like just to, to 2011 when Daniel Jurgen came out with his book, um, basically saying, you know, the whole political power of the world is shifting from um, power being held by OPEC, um, you know, in the Middle East, and but it's shifting to North America and the Western Hemisphere because of tar sands, Bakken oil, fracking, offshore drilling. Um, this is what we were up against. I mean, this was the vision for the new world. And there was nothing about climate in this vision, right? right? So we had to insert the climate issue. And, you know, to think that we successfully did that is, you know, kind of amazing. So I think now I'm ready to talk about Alberta Clipper. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's not, that's a tough issue. So, yeah, so Clipper, Alberta Clipper was the pipeline that was approved right before the Keystone XL was proposed. Um, it was uh, built by a different tar sands um, pipeline company, Enbridge, not TransCanada, which was Keystone XL. Um, they were able to get it through in the very early years of the Obama administration, actually months of the Obama administration. It was pushed through in the summer of 2009, basically um, had been teed up by the Bush administration, um, went through quite quickly. I think State Department's statement, because they have to approved permits because it crosses the U.S. border, their statement was no longer than a page long. And EPA told us, well, we can't really find any evidence of being contacted by state about the national interest of approving this pipeline, which was kind of the test under this EO executive order. Anyway, um, so Clipper went through and um, 
Clipper to this day remains sort of a thorn in our side because it's a big pipeline too, like Keystone. It's about 800,000 barrels a day. Um, capacity, Keystone would have been 900 plus. Um, but, you know, very similar in size um, from Alberta to Lake Superior. Um, and uh, in the beginning, it was just permitted to run about 450,000 barrels of oil a day through the pipeline. And post-Keystone, Enbridge wanted to expand to the 800. Um, and uh, so they went into the State Department. The State Department said, well, um, uh, you know, you're going to have to go through a presidential permit process. And they said, oh, we don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, right after Keystone, we don't want to do that. So they they concocted this whole thing where they literally um, built a um, pipeline segment off of Keystone, I'm mean, sorry, off of Clipper on the Canadian side to quote an old pipeline called Line 3 and then diverted it back to Keystone on the other, uh, sorry, back to Clipper on the other side mm. of the border. And um, meanwhile, um, this really wasn't Line 3, it was a brand new 16 mile segment of pipe that went across the border, which is really outrageous because it's new pipe, so of course it should go through an EIS process. But they mm. said it was maintenance on old line three that predated NEPA. So huh. there we were. Oh my God, you know, we can't believe this is happening right after Keystone. And we still can't get State Department to really focus hmm. on what's happening with Clipper. It's outrageous that we can't let them get away hmm. with this because then it sort of diminishes, I think, the value of the sure. whole Keystone point, which is right. You know, we need to seriously look at these pipelines and the impact of tar sands oil coming into our country. So, yeah, we're still working on that one. Ongoing. Ongoing. Keep, Check in with me later. On. You got it. You got <laughs> it. So returning to the idea of carbon budgets and limiting global warming to two degrees Celsius kind of brings to mind the idea of international climate targets. And a number of Yale students and forestry and environmental studies graduate students attended the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Talks that occurred in Paris in December. Um, and you represented NRDC at the 1992 Rio Earth Summit Conference. Which yeah, I think is it was 15 then. Just <laughs> which <laughs> makes me sound really old. Oh, oh it's historic. God. It's so historic. I'm such a climate geek. I love it. It's just incredible. Um, the UNFCCC Framework Convention grew out of that conference. Can you tell me or tell us a little bit what it was like to be at that conference? Well, it was... So the really funny thing about the Earth Summit was that it actually went by this acronym up until about the day that the summit started. So it was called UNSAID, I think, which is a UN huh. Conference on Environment and Development. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I remember the moment when I was in the big hall where the negotiations were about to start. And I saw Ted Turner walking with the Dalai Lama, walking with Al Gore, the three of them, <laughs> walking across the floor. Dream and team. that was kind of the moment at which it became, you know... It became the Earth Summit. Yeah. Um, it was a really important conference. I know it might be easy today to say, well, gosh, what did it really produce? But it did produce. It produced the Framework Convention. Right. Um, it produced um, the Biodiversity Treaty. Uh, there was an effort to put together a forest agreement which fell apart, which was actually very illustrative of how desperately we need to change as the community. Right. We need to change our forest work because right. – Focus was all on developing country for us, and there was sort of this implicit, like, you know, you protect your forest so that we can keep, you know, living our, I think, you know, Cheney said it best, the American lifestyle is not up for debate, you know, debate. Um, so we can keep living our lifestyle. Um, and, you know, the developing world said, you know, sorry, uh, I think you need to also participate in this. And it really spawned after I finished up with the that um, UN conference, I worked another year to put in place a 
commission in the UN to review the progress under um, under the Rio or summit, um, huh. or after the Rio or summit, to basically look at progress under the climate treaty, biodiversity treaty, uh, the um, Agenda 21, and all huh. those sort of pieces that came out. Um, but then I started work on northern forests and um, on the Canadian temperate rainforest and boreal forest ultimately um, because we do need to do our part. I mean, right. one-third of terrestrial carbon is in the boreal forest. It's huge. It's huge. And the north really hadn't acknowledged this at Rio. So Rio really helped to, you know, even failure sometimes can lead to sure. ultimately success. Or not success, but at least focus. And so um, even the failure at Rio, not getting that forest agreement, helped, I think, to spur um, the creation of the Forest Stewardship Council, um, which focuses on, of course, northern forests as much uh, and even more, really, because there's so much more product that comes out of um, northern forests, particularly in Canada. Um, uh, and, um, and I think um, did galvanize the world community. There's been some, you know, follow-up treaty or convention since then. I think it really did galvanize the world. I think most of the leaders came, um, you know, there was a big push. NRDC led a big push to get the leaders of every country to go to um, the Earth Summit. So I think that was, you know, at that point, it was really important to show that um, that we could come together right. as nations and address some of these environmental concerns. Um, I think in terms of Paris, what's interesting is we did labor on for many years, and I did continue working on the climate treaty until Berlin, which was a couple years before the Kyoto Protocol was adopted. Um, uh, you know, we did think that the treaty was going to solve the problem, and that also was. We had to learn the hard way that that was not going to be the way it worked. Um, so I think one thing that's, you know, I think some ways disappointing because you really do want to have sort of targets and timetables in an international agreement. But on the other hand, is also probably a refreshing and probably a good approach, which is to have national governments come up with their own commitments, right. present it to the group, and then kind of have be held accountable through. And for the first time, like you said, we have everybody making a commitment together. Right. It's not this less of a north-south divide. It's the first time right. ever that, you Right, know, exactly. Oh, my God, that debate. I mean, it, it was amazing that yeah. up until Paris, it was exactly the same debate that I was particip participating right. back in, you know, um, in the early 90s, which was that basically those who don't really want to see us take climate action in the United States were saying, until China and India are equal partners in this, we're not playing. And, of course, China and India were saying, well, you know, um, you guys have been the ones who have, if you look up into the atmosphere, most of that is yours. Um, you know, you need to acknowledge that, that you have been the, you know, major force, the industrialized countries of creating this huge buildup of carbon dioxide. And so you need to be, you need to factor that in and the expectations you have for our countries. So it took a lot of years to get to a place. And I think, frankly, it's because we're now experiencing climate change. Right. The countries, they are, you know, experiencing yeah. at the country level. Their people are calling for action. China's so polluted from coal-fired electricity that their people can't breathe. You know, we've all seen pictures of people going to work with masks over their face. You can barely see them on their bicycles. Um Soon those will be cars. This is terrifying. So, I mean, it's an issue that I think um, is no longer discussed just in the halls of the UN, but is really, you know, happening at the national level. And I think that's finally helping us move forward, of course, much later than many of, of us had hoped. Right. And I think that the idea of common but differentiated responsibilities is still in the Paris Agreement as we go forth. I think it's in a bunch of different places. Yeah. Um, 
I think it's so fascinating how this all ties together, too, looking at the timing of even President Obama's rejection of the Keystone XL pipeline in November 2015. And then we have the bilateral agreement talk between the U.S. and China, China yeah, right after that, all this important. momentum leading right, right. into uh, COP21. So yeah. it's it's really kind of amazing how many things how are going on, right? Yeah. And and they're mutually reinforcing. I mean, it was right. you know, I mean, we just felt it was super important that um, how could the president approve this tar sands pipeline um, and go to Paris yeah. and say we need action of the whole world community. Um, he made that point in rejecting Keystone. I mean, he walked through all the arguments, the tests that um, uh, he had laid out for years under the executive order, um, you know, where he had to find, you know, is this in the national interest? So we walked through all that. But then he came, you know, to the climate issue and to the um, question of, you know, U.S. leadership. Um, and I remember when he first met Stephen Harper, who, you know, was very conservative um, prime minister for Canada for many years. He, I think I can say I'm pretty happy that Justin Trudeau is the new prime minister in Canada. Harper came from Alberta, was really from the oil patch, you know, wanted to create a tar sands energy superpower out of Canada. Not sure he and Obama really ever saw eye to eye, certainly not on this issue. Um but, um, you know, I remember Obama, it was his first, the president's first international trip was to Canada. And I remember him saying to Stephen Harper, if we can't do it as two of the wealthiest, you know, industrialized countries, how can we expect mm-hmm. other people to do it? Okay. And, um, and that was very heartening to me, even though he was still saying oil sands, I'll forgive him that one, because he was immediately <laughs> focused on this issue of responsibility and leadership. Um, and I do think um, it will be one of his um, great legacy issues, you know. Right. Um, the two big issues, because we just cannot seem to get Congress to act on this issue, the two big issues, of course, have been, um, as you, you were saying before Paris, um, was Keystone XL, which kind of dealt with the oil issue. Um, and the second one was, I mean, I think and there were also issues around Bakken and fracking. I mean, it's complex, right? Um, and then uh, there, of course, are the power plant, the clean power role, um, right. that he was also teeing up all these executive actions, right, because we can't get a Congress to act. There were things the president could do, and he just felt really strongly and need to be on the right side of these issues in order to go to, to, um, to, go to uh, Paris. So I think one of the, the less highlighted aspects, but yet really remarkable things that came out of COP21 in the Paris Agreement is uh, for the first time, forests are referenced as uh, a possible carbon sink and even red plus or reducing emissions right. from deforestation and forest degradation is in the text for the first time. Um, and I know you earlier mentioned um, FSC and mm. uh before this, where there isn't an international agreement on uh, forests and forestry issues or sustainable forestry, what we were left with was uh, market mechanisms. And I know that mm. you had played a big part in getting Home Depot and other major companies to become advocates for protecting forests. Uh, what was that campaign like? Yeah, that was that was really exciting. Um, <coughs> you know, we were <coughs> we started this work in Canada. Um, British Columbia, if you look at sort of the map in North America of where the majority of our wood products, and I'm talking about not just two-by-fours, but catalogs and, you know, newspaper inserts and, um, you know, just so much of our throwaways, tissue, toilet paper, so much of this stuff was coming from, you know, Canada never cut forests. I mean, old-growth forests, so beautiful. Temperate rainforests being used for throwaway 
you know, newspaper and magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, Macmillan Bloedel was the largest logging company in Canada, and they put out these annual reports that always had pictures of their customers, you know, like a picture of the New York Times magazine, a picture of Pac Bell and their, mm-hmm. you know, their uh, phone book. Well, I can say a couple years into our campaign, they stopped doing that. <laughs> it was like, oh, that's who their customers are. Okay. And we started to think, well, how can we have, you know, put some pressure on? Um, because clearly our um, our environmental partners or native partners, because we work very closely with indigenous peoples in Canada, um, they're often in these places where these forests are being cut. They've never ceded their land by treaty or war. You know, um, these are their traditional territories. Um, and they felt powerless against this international market that was just sucking this these beautiful old old growth forests, you know, out and away from them um, to the United States, to Germany, to the UK. And um, we thought, well, we need to work to give power to their voice because their story is incredibly powerful. This is their land. Um, and uh, and we thought, um, you know, there there you know we looked at things like the Migratory Bird Treaty Act mm-hmm. and other mechanisms, and we did we have used some of those in those campaigns, um, but the um, most powerful force, of course, is the marketplace. So we we did we we went to the marketplace. Greenpeace had run a um, European markets campaign for a few years, focused on um, some of the biggest consumers um, of wood products in Germany and the UK and the rest of Europe. Um, and they'd gotten some traction on that where millions of dollars of contracts had been canceled as a result of hmm. um, Axel Springer in Germany, for example, a huge newspaper producer um, uh, canceling its contract. So ultimately, we had a campaign in the U.S., including Home Depot, you're right, that was a huge target of ours um, to get them to adopt procurement policies. Um, we had a campaign to um, get them to agree to adopt purchasing policies and then hmm. use their power you know, because they were basically saying, we are not going to buy. This is how, what we're going to buy. We're going to buy. We're not going to buy forest products from endangered forests. And we'll work with you to map those. And British Columbia was our first focus, but that's been expanded to many other forests now. Um, we are only going to buy FSC certified, you know, third-party Huge. certified forest products. It was a very exciting time. We got ultimately 400 companies to wow. sign up. To, uh, to this so it was a it was a big time um uh you know in um exerting this sort of markets campaign um mechanism which was kind of new to the movement absolutely um and you now know, it's everywhere yeah and you see yeah and now FSC you see it in agriculture you see in a lot of places yep. people using coffee policies this, right these exactly. market well and i suppose to be fair to coffee they were ahead of us on the fair trade um <laughs> issue because they had you know worked on that years right. before right and connecting um, right, Cafe Deluxe and some of the other coffee products to the marketplace. So yeah, I suppose we stole it from them to give them credit. <laughs> <laughs> so we're winding down here, but I just have to I have to ask before we go for those of us that might want to have such an incredible career and such a broad range of just amazing and rich uh, experiences in the environmental field. For those of us that might want to start our own advocacy group or NGO, what advice might you have for for young environmental activists? Get into it. Um, there's, <laughs> there's no, you know, there's no, you know, alternative to, you know, jumping in. And um, uh, um, so I, I, I know it's sometimes hard because sometimes you have to do sort of an unpaid internship and, you know, work a job on the side or whatever, or you're not going to be paid very much. But um, it has been um, just an amazing career for me. Um, 
I'm, I'm so happy that um, I've had work that's been fulfilling, that I feel like um, I've, you know, helped make a difference. And really, as I said, the most important to me thing to me is to help. When I think about, like, community right to know or working mm-hmm. with Native communities, it's giving power to people, wow. right? I mean, this right. is, like, what Kerry Kennedy always says about the RFK human rights organizations, about, you know, speaking truth to power. That's really what it is. And mm-hmm. so I take a lot of my, um, you know, I, I don't think I'm done yet, but um, I'm I, I, to the extent that I've helped give voice to people who are either voiceless or um, don't have the loudest voice on some of these issues, I feel like I've been a success. So um, I think uh, the work is very, um, it can be, um, you know, just uh, really, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful career. We need more people out in this field. You know, um, as I said early in this talk that people said to me, you know, how are you going to get a job in the environmental field? Well, sadly, we haven't <laughs> solved all the environmental problems yet. In fact, yeah, there's plenty of work. There's so lots of work. There's lots of work. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just, you know, at whatever level, I think wherever you land, um, if you're working at the local level, you're working national or international, everything's, everything is, com- you know, very closely connected. You're going to have a great experience. So, yeah, go out and go out and do it. Okay, last one. Is it true that you run an organic <gasps> olive and sheep farm in Mallorca, Spain? Oh, my gosh, yes. On top of everything else, um, my dad lived on a 600-acre sheep farm for a good part of his life. And when he passed away 20 years ago, he left it to me um, oh, and my family. What and a so, dream. Yeah. Um, I, I like to say it's a beautiful yoke um, because uh, it is a large property. Um, but we produce organic olive oil, and we farm in this really traditional way with the moon. And um, oh. and it, it, we have a very bi- robust what is that one called? Bio. Yeah, well, biodynamic. There we right? go. Bio, right. Exactly. Bio. But it fits in very much with the Myrkine way of, of yeah. farming. Um, so it's the place, I have to say, where I go back and I feel, not to use a pun here, but I feel rooted, you oh, know, in beautiful. my 3,000 year old yeah. olive trees. Incredible. How could know, you not? Not 3,000 3, <laughs> olive trees that are 500 plus years old, not 3,000 years old quite yet. The forestry um, roots run deep. The forestry roots run deep, right. And, and you know, I, I think that's one of the hardest parts about being in the environmental movement is. Um, it can take a lot out of you. And so this place has given me, right, it's a place to recharge, it's a place to be in nature, looking up at, you know, hawks flying overhead, falcons. We have had flocks of falcons the last few years um, who come to eat um, uh, crickets on our, and locusts Mm -hmm. on our our farm in in July. And so we wake up in the morning with them swooping around us, and it's just incredible. We have a very robust um, volunteer program. So go to our website, (laughs) pedrushea, P-E-D-R-U-X-E-L-L-A.com, and um, come volunteer for us because um, I think it's been life-changing for many people. We've had over 300 volunteers um, over the last 10 years. Woofing, and, right? Uh, woofing, yeah. right. We're woof hope site. And we love that. We love doing that and meeting all these young – I mean, I get lots of exposure working with my team at NRDC to young, inspired people. But, you know, it really has been an amazing experience having – Kids from 20 countries come to volunteer for us, all with a very, I think, hopeful vision of what the future could look like. And that, to me, is very encouraging because I've got two kids, too, that mm-hmm. I want to have um, see, uh, see have hope. For those next generations. In the future. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being with us. It's just been wonderful. And for those of us that might want to do some some woofing, uh, definitely check <laughs> Sign it out. Sign up soon. And, yeah, and maybe we'll see you in Spain. <laughs> okay. Thanks thank you so, so much. much. All right. Bye-bye. 
The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.